Let's turn in the Word of God to Malachi. The third chapter and the 18th verse is where I would like to begin tonight. I want to finish this series that we began last year on the Minor Prophets. And as you're turning there in in your Bibles, I want you to be reminded of the different references to Christ in the Minor Prophets. Back in Hosea, he was the eternal husband. That's the first one that we looked at, the faithful eternal husband. In Joel, he was the baptizer with the Holy Ghost. In Amos, he was our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he was our savior. In Jonah, he was that great foreign evangelist. And in Micah, he was the messenger with the beautiful feet. In Nahum, he was our avenger. In Habakkuk, he was the evangelist or the preacher pleading for revival. In Zephaniah, he was the Lord mighty to save. In Haggai, he was the restorer of the lost heritage. In Zechariah, he has a lot of names. The fountain opened in the house of David for sin and uncleanness. The branch and the brand also. And then as we look at Malachi, there's several things that he could be referred to in Malachi. The messenger of the covenant. He's referred to as that and the refiner, and most notably, the son of righteousness who will rise with healing in his wings. But this is it. This is the end of the minor prophets and the close of the Old Testament canon, the canon of Scripture from the Old Testament, and there's about a 400-year pause. And so the message I'm entitling it is the sunsets on the Old Covenant because we see that he speaks of the sun rising. So we're calling this the sunset on the old covenant. And the sunrise of the new is what is coming. It's out with the old and it's in with the new. And it's a long pause. You you can turn your page, one page, from the end of Malachi over into the book of Matthew. And that one turn of the page was a 400-year pause. And the Lord stopped giving the direct message through the prophets. Let's read in Malachi 3 and 18. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. And by the way, this is not a reference to the last day of final judgment. This is a reference to the coming of Jesus. Now, it may have some distant meaning, and there is some reference to the final day. You'll see that, but this is more of a reference to the coming of Jesus. The day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch, but unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's a reference to that last day when the Lord sits upon his throne and the books are opened. 
But he said, before that, I will send you Elijah the prophet. That's a reference to John the Baptist. Now watch verse 6. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. When I read that, I've read it many times, but when I read that in studying and preparing to speak about it, I thought about the fairy tales, you know, where it says that they lived happily ever after. Well, this one sort of sounds like they lived happily never after. (laughs) It's a very negative closing to the Old Testament. A curse is pronounced. If the family does not come back together like the family is intended to be in the eyes of God and according to the Word of God, he says you can expect nothing but a curse. If you can't see the relevance to that today, one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons that we see the curses that are upon our land, our nation, is because of the family not being what God intended for the family to be. So the Old Testament ended, and they all lived happily never after because the Lord said, a curse upon you if the family does not come back together. Now think about what was going on as we've looked in the book of Malachi. The general tone of Malachi is the people were disappointed in God. They were disappointed because the blessings that they expected in returning after captivity were not fulfilled in their eyes. The blessings were fulfilled. Don't make any mistake about that. The blessings that God intended were fulfilled, but the people were disappointed because their expectation of God fulfilling those blessings, they were disappointed. And also the priests were living in a loose way, and their examples that they were set were mostly bad examples. And People were marrying and giving in marriage and divorcing. And so what you have overall in the book of Malachi, it's really presented like a debate. You know, the people say, you're not being fair, God, you're not being just. And and then it's like Malachi through God through Malachi is debating with the people. He says, you say this about me. And then they say, well, how do we say these things? You know, how are we profaning your name? And it's just this debate that's going on back and forth in the book of Malachi. But the Lord ultimately says this. He says, all of this that you're complaining about and all of these things you're not happy with me about, which they really had no reason to be, because, you know, guess what? They weren't prisoners in Babylon anymore. He says the sunrise is going to make that clear. When the sun rises with healing in its wings, speaking of Jesus. So I want you to get four primary lessons out of this as we close our thoughts on the minor prophets. First of all, Notice as I included verse 18 in the reading of chapter 3 and and it carries over into verse 1. Notice that he says there's coming a time when the true servants of God will be made manifest. You'll be able to discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. So the burning oven that he references there is going to manifest who is really serving God. And this isn't some kind of competition where, oh, I'm serving God better than you, or so and so. You know, we've got some kind of competition in keeping score. No, he's just simply stating that when this happens, when when the sunrise comes to the New Testament, you're going to see clearly who really is serving God and who is not. And it's a direct reference to the sun of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. When Christ comes. And remember, he says, the key to to noticing when Christ is coming is I'm going to send my messenger. 
He's going to come and He's going to bulldoze the way before Christ. That's John the Baptist. He's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. We know without question that John the Baptist was what was intended when he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Now, it was, it was legend among the people of God, among the Israelites, that he, God was actually going to send Elijah himself. And the reason, one of the reasons they thought that is because, you remember, Elijah never died. He went to heaven in his body. That was a really significant event. And Brother Luke, I promise I'm not going to steal any of your messages that I cannot wait to hear on Elijah. I'm just going to touch on him just a little bit. But Elijah, as Brother Luke has told us on his Sunday morning messages, of which I can't wait to hear more of, Elijah was an amazing prophet. There was no greater prophet in the Old Testament, really, than Elijah and the things that took place. He was a nation saver. And he didn't die. There's nobody except for one other guy in the Old Testament, Enoch. He goes to heaven. He was translated to heaven without dying. Elijah, translated to heaven without dying in a chariot of fire. That's amazing. And so the people got it in their head. Oh, he's going to send Elijah back down, probably in a chariot of fire. And he's going to destroy the prophets of Baal again and do all the amazing works that took place. But he wasn't talking about physical Elijah. He said, there's going to come one in the spirit and power of Elijah. And I encourage you to study that out in the New Testament. Christ says that this is Elijah that would come. John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that. But you see how they got mixed up on it through interpretations and misinterpretations of the scripture. So the first thing to note is that whenever this takes place, what he's referring to, it's going to manifest who is serving God and who is not. So just so you can understand how that worked out when Jesus came, the Pharisees, the legalists who allegedly were serving God, they were burnt up in the oven of Jesus Christ. You remember Matthew 23, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you scribes, woe to you lawyers, you doctors of the law. He burnt them up to a crisp. What about in the book of John? He said, ye are of your father the devil. That's an oven right there. He's burning the legalists. Let me tell you, child of God, a legalist has no place in the kingdom of God. We're living in the age of grace. And the true servants of God were manifest. Why do you think he called a bunch of fishermen who didn't even have an education? <laughs> you know, he calls Matthew, who is, uh, he was apparently an accountant. You know, he was a tax collector for, uh, for the Romans and he was hated. But you see, he didn't go and call the Nicodemuses and the doctors of the law, he went and he called these so-called ignorant fishermen because these were the true servants of God. These were ones that were living and manifesting the righteousness of God that was intended by keeping the law of Moses. He burnt the Pharisees to a crisp and they hated him. You see? That's what is meant by that. When, when Christ comes, whenever the refiner comes, notice it says... Their day will come that shall burn as an oven. It refers to him also as one in the previous chapter as a refiner of silver and of gold. He would burn out the dross. And the Pharisees were the dross. The way they were laying burdens upon men and telling them you have to do this and you have to do that to be righteous before God and to be holy. They were keeping score with each other. That's a terrible place to be. The greatest of all the apostles said we should never keep score among ourselves. He says they that compare themselves among themselves. He said you're not wise. Well this person is doing more than I'm doing. So I'm comparing myself to them. You know, you can always probably find somebody that's doing more than you're doing. And you can always probably find somebody that's doing less than what you're doing. 
You'd hate to be at the very bottom of that list, wouldn't you? I can't find anybody that's worse than me. <laughs> you hate to be at the bottom of that barrel. But you see, that is wrong when it comes to the kingdom of God. We should be focusing on Christ who did more than anyone could do. And when He came, He was like an oven. He burned the legalists up. He burned them to a crisp. And He didn't use fire and brimstone when He came. He used His words. He said, you're not keeping the law. You're, you are, you are, there are woes pronounced unto you because you are a legalist. You're living by some kind of legal standard and you think that's going to bring favor to, uh, with, with you to me. He said, that's not how it works. He burned them up in the, in the oven of grace, if you will. <laughs> they couldn't stand Him because what He was teaching did not measure up to their standard that they were keeping among themselves. I'm better than you. I'm doing more. And they wouldn't even, they were corrupt. And He says, think about this. He said, you guys are like a bunch of whited sepulchers, a bunch of a washed over graves that have been cleaned. He said, it looks good on the outside and they're taking good care of those, those graves on the outside, but inside it's nothing but dead man's bones. He burnt them up, you see, in the oven of grace. So that was what happened to the Pharisees, the Jews, the hypocrites. They were burnt up in the oven of God. Their system that they live by it does not exist anymore. Now, in the sense of the way that it was. Now, there is, a, there is a system of legalism out there today. And let me make sure you understand what it looks like. The, the legalism out there today, nobody's going to go around and say, the Pharisees didn't go around and say, we're the legalists. <laughs> you know, and nobody out there today is going to go around and say, well, we're, the, you know, we're the legalist system. But this is what it looks like, just so you can understand. It's anything that is not grace. <laughs> Where you're living by a standard that you think gives you favor before God because of what you do. Now that does not mean that we don't do good works and we don't do good things. But it means that if you're living by a standard to get favor with God so you can go to heaven, that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. And if you want to know what it looks like out in the religious world, it's when somebody says, in order to be saved, in order to go to heaven, you must do the following. Be baptized, pray a prayer, make a confession. All of those things are a standard that must be kept in order to get favor with God. The problem with that is men like the thief on the cross can never fit into that standard. <laughs> Babies in the womb that are born again before they're born into the world can never meet that standard. People that are mentally challenged who cannot even think for themselves, but you know and you feel and you can witness that they are God's children, they can't meet that standard. And guess what? You, me, we can't meet that standard. Amen. See, we're all saved by the standard of grace and Christ kept that. So if you want to know what that looks like out in the world, the words of Christ burn those standards up today. Because the only way you're going to be in heaven is by the work of Christ. Not by the confession, not by the baptism, not by the, the good work that you do. Keep doing your good work. Keep doing those things. But understand why you do them and why they're important. They're important for the glory of God, not for the internal salvation of a child of God. The Pharisees believed that the way they lived and the standard that they lived by was essential for them to be able to be in heaven and not only that, to get rewards in heaven. See, let me tell you, there's, there's no rewards in heaven other than the rewards that sit upon the crown of the Son of God. And that's rightly so. That's where all the rewards in heaven and the accolades belong. Because there won't be anybody in heaven that's there because of something they did. 
Maybe we'll get to having a conversation with the thief on the cross in one of those first millennia or two or three millennia of time when we're there. There's not going to be anybody in heaven that lived by a standard that men set to get you there. Christ came and he burned all that up. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. My work is what matters. I'm the one that's going to get it done. All of that light, all of that sunrise, shed the light of God upon the law and what the law was all about. The law was a shadow that pointed to Christ. It was not the salvation. It was a shadow of Christ. Now, Have you ever tried to figure out, unless you already knew it, have you ever tried to figure out what was casting a shadow if just a shadow just came up on the wall, you know, if my hand was a shadow up on the wall and you could see that clearly, you, you could pretty much tell, well, there's, there's five digits in the shadow, so that, that must be a hand. <laughs> you know, that'd be easy to figure out. But what if you didn't have that? You know, what if it was just like this and you couldn't see the digits of the fingers sticking out from the hand? You know, it's, it'd be very hard to figure out what the source of a shadow was unless you turned and you looked at the source, Right? You know, did you ever used to, we used to make these, you know, sh shadow things on the wall, you know, when we would be watching movies at the house. Mom had this old projector, and we'd take time in between them putting the film on the projector, Dad hooking it up, and, and Chris and I would get up there, you know, we'd do rabbits and dogs and you know, alligators and all this stuff, you know. And you could see our hands. It looked like an alligator up there. It looked like a dog up there. But you could see our silly little hands, you know, making these mo movements. But if you didn't see the hands, you might think, oh my goodness, there's a dog. Oh my goodness, there's an alligator. Are y'all with me? Unless you see the source of what, the sh of what is casting the shadow, you really don't know what, the, what is casting the shadow. And when Christ came, the Son of Righteousness arose with healing in His wings. He was the source of the shadow of the law. You see? And they didn't like it. Because they had their little world that they'd been told about all their life. And they would had their little, their little picture of God painted. And He was all in a little box. And as long as He did what they wanted Him to do and didn't get out of that box, everything was fine. <laughs> but God doesn't live in a box. He's not a tame lion. And our salvation is through Christ alone. John the Baptist even referred to this aspect of Jesus being like he's bringing an oven and burning up those works. He said in Matthew 3 and 12, speaking of Christ, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You see, the works of men are the chaff. But Christ is the pure work of God. You see, He is the pure worker of God. Christ burnt them up with His pronouncements of woes upon their system. As I said, He already looked at them and He said, you're of your father the devil. That's very bold what He did there. We don't have the authority to do that because we're not Christ. But He had the authority to do that and He burnt them up. And by the way, this reference to the burning of the oven, it culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. It culminated then. He alluded to it. He was very direct about it. In Matthew, the 25th chapter, he said things along this line. He said, when you see the army surrounding Jerusalem, head for the hills. And now I don't know if this is accurate historically. I've read a few commentaries that say that it is accurate. But some of the commentaries say historically that when Rome surrounded Jerusalem in AD 70, and it was up, it was over. And they were literally eating each other inside of the city. It says that there was a pause for a day or two somewhere in that siege. And 
they allowed the Christians that were remained in that city, the few Christians that remained in that city to leave. And it, it is said in legend that not a single Christian died in the siege of Jerusalem. But the Pharisees did because they were expecting their idea of their Messiah to come and save them and Jerusalem was decimated. It burned up like an oven. It burned up like an oven. So, not a very happy thought, but in verse 2, the second thing we want to learn from this He says, but unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings. There's happiness to the righteous by the coming of the Messiah. Note the contrast. There's going to be a group of people when He comes and it's going to burn them to a crisp. (laughs) Again, it's not necessarily talking about the end of time. That is going to be a very hot day for sure. But it's talking about when Christ comes and the the Pharisees, the legalists, were burnt to a crisp. But the ones who were sinners and saw themselves as sinners, the Peters, the James, the Johns, the Mary Magdalene's, the Marthas, the Marys. I mean, think about it. Think about all the people. We could just go to Lazarus, the Matthews, the Marks. Just think about the people that were Happy and joyful over his presence. He arose when the sun set on the Old Testament and 400 years later, the sunrise of the New Testament comes up. Those that saw themselves as sinners and that they didn't fit into the legalist system and they couldn't meet the condition. They knew they couldn't, but they were steadily and quietly just keeping the law of God, doing the best that they could. They rejoiced. They laughed. They had a great time with the Son of God. I mean, there were hardships, of course, but they had joy when the Son of Righteousness arose with healing in His wings. And He says, "Ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. I know all of you hadn't grown up on a farm, but I have seen those calves of the stall after they are released from the stall. I have seen those little fellows just go out there and buck and kick. And some of you have seen this. They just act like they don't have a care in the world. It's the funniest little thing to see those calves of the stall, those healthy calves. They just go running. And sometimes they run with it. Sometimes I've seen them run into each other. They're so bucking up and down and just having a great time. That's the image that's given right here. You will go out and tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. The Lord is saying that the the legalism and the systems of man that are going to be burnt up are going to be just treaded upon. You're going to march over that with grace. And you'll be a happy calf. You'll go out as calves of the stall. You see, when the Son of Righteousness rises with healing in His wings, when He comes, that's what He's going to do. Now, listen. We read in the book of, I think it's 2 Peter, where He talks about the day star rising in your heart. That's something that happens over and over again for a child of God. When you hear the gospel and you hear the good news of grace, when you let go of any legalism or any conditions of man that that you may have had imposed upon you, and you just look at pure grace and you see what Christ has done, I tell you, that day star rises in your heart and it heals you. It heals you in understanding in your troubled mind that it's all about honoring God and bringing glory, glory to Him and not about what I do then you're in a wonderful condition to actually do things that honor God. You see? So, Malachi tells about the rising of the sun in the new age, the new era. 
And Malachi also tells about how you should look back to the law. Remember the law. He says also tells us about some pre-dawn activities. Elijah would come. Speaking of John the Baptist. That's kind of a pre-dawn activity. Leading up to the time that Christ would manifest Himself as the Son of God. When He would be baptized publicly and go forth and, and acknowledge that He's the Son of God. He kept it quiet you know, for years and years after he, after he was born of the Virgin. And then he, for years, until He's 30, and He's baptized and it's publicly known. That great light began to shine. That's when the Son of Righteousness began to rise with healing in His wings. Isaiah, the 60th chapter in verse 1 says this, Arise, shine, for the light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. That's a reference to the, the first coming of Christ. Arise and shine, for the glory of the Lord is here. Look at Isaiah, the 8th chapter. This is another reference to the light coming. And I tell you, child of grace, the light is still here today. The light is still in the world today in the way that Christ, I'm not saying Christ is walking around on the earth, but the light that he left and the light of the gospel and the truth of the gospel is still here. Look at Isaiah 8, and it was very hard for me to figure out where to start, but look at verse 16, because this is similar language to Malachi. He says in Isaiah 8 and 16, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Did you notice that? He says, my disciples are going to key in on this. Those that are serving me are going to key in on this. And I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. What's about to happen in the book of Malachi? He's about to hide his face from the house of Jacob, the house of Judah. He's about to, to go into hiding, if you will, like hide and seek. But the disciples who cling to the testimony of God will be looking for him. They'll find little glimpses of him here and there and they'll look for him for when the sun rises with healing in its wings. Notice he says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits and unto wizards that peep and that mutter should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? He's saying, when people try to encourage you or discourage you, look somewhere else for hope. You know, look to uh, what I call the horror scope, you know, where somebody says they're going to read your palm or something like that. Back in those days, that was very popular. And in the book of Malachi, these things were going on too because Nehemiah, Ezra, and those guys had to call them down over those things. You need to come back to the worship of God. Don't listen to that nonsense. You've got the law and you've got the testimony. So just listen to the Word of God. That's all you need. Don't go and seeking signs and don't go looking over here in other places where you know that God would not bless, but seek unto their God. Look at verse 20. To the law and to the testimony. What does Malachi say? The third thing he says there, as the light shines, as the light dawns, as the sun rises coming, he says, remember the law. Remember the law of Moses. You want to know what to do until the sunrise comes? He says, remember the law and keep the commandments. Here he says, look to the law and the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. That ought to be a lesson for us today. He said, I'm seeking the truth, Brother Tim. I'm trying to find the truth. Well, do they say what the word of God says? Yeah, but there's a lot of newfangled ideas out there. And a lot of new different professors have a lot of different ideas. Are they saying what the Word of God says? He says, if they don't say what the Word of God says, if they don't line up with the Word of God, then you should not listen to them. 
and they shall pass through it. If you listen to them, this is what you can expect. If you listen to those that have no light, they shall pass through it, the, the land hardly bestead and hungry. And it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward like they're shaking their fists going, you're like, God, why have you done this to me? God hasn't done it to them. They stopped listening to the Word of God. They started listening to wizards and to sorcerers and to people that would change the Word of God and not say, thus saith the Word of God. And they shake their fists at God and they say, why am I hungry? That's a sad picture, isn't it? But there's hope. They shall look unto the earth and behold, trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Isn't that a sad, is that not a testimony to where uh, the, the world pretty much is today? Driven to darkness. It just gets darker and darker and darker, and it seems hopeless and hopeless. But verse 1 of chapter 9, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulon, the land of Natali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwelled in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. You know, that's a direct reference to the book of Matthew where it says that Jesus went into that area, the exact area that he's speaking of, the area of the land of, of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. I think I've shared this with you before, but that area was a war-torn area. It was on the fringes. It was on the edge. It was on the border of the promised land. And so when enemy would, the enemy would come, the enemy armies, the initial skirmishes, the initial battles, and the raids and the different things that, that went on whenever armies were fighting with one another, it happened in an area like that, the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, because it was a border town. It was, a, it was a war-torn area. That it, was, it was a dangerous place to live because you don't know when the political climate might change and the next thing you know, the Assyrians are coming or the Philistines are coming or some other band of robbers or, or whatever you might have vexing the people. It was just a constant turmoil in that area. It was not the best place to live. Why do you think that they said of Nazareth? You know, Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It was a border town. It was a nowhere place. And here it says, nevertheless, light has sprung forth in those border towns. And you know what that light was? It was Jesus Christ. He's walking around doing the things that He did. Saying the things that He said. And He is walking light manifest. I don't mean that He was shining brightly. Although you know He did shine brightly when He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He shined like the sun. But in what He did and what He said, He was bringing light. Don't we want to be people like that that bring light and we don't bring darkness? Don't we want to bring light to one another's life? I'll tell you how to do that, child of God. It is follow the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether you are directly speaking with someone, just in what you do and what you say and how you act, you will bring light to those that are around you. Which brings peace. In Matthew, at least the fourth chapter, he says that the saying might be fulfilled that's written in the book of Isaiah. The people that sit in darkness have seen great light. Well, we need light today, don't we? There's many of God's children out there today that are so confused about salvation, about gender, about marriage, about politics, about just name it. There's so many of God's children that are confused and caught up in the dimness and the anguish and falling off into darkness. But I tell you, child of God, since the time of Christ, since the resurrection of Christ, since He went back to heaven, that light is still on this earth. It may just be a remnant but it's still light. He says, third thing I want us to get in Malachi, 
He says, remember, verse 4, remember ye the law of Moses, my servant. Just keep the law. You want to know what to do? He says, I'm about to hide my face. The Lord, you know, he didn't say, I'm not going to speak to you for 400 years. But the last message that he sends to them, he says, just remember the law. You've got everything that you need to anticipate my coming by remembering the law. Just keep the law. Observe my commandments. Remember, I just read from the book of Isaiah. He said, bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. Don't go anywhere else for truth. Come to the word of God. Just keep the law till I come. Do you remember how Jesus said in Luke, the 18th chapter, when he was talking about prayer, he said, he gave the example of the unjust judge where the widow woman was going and, and continuing to vex. The, he said there was this widow woman and she had an issue and she met this judge in the street. She went to the place where the judge ate. She went to the court. She cried out, deliver me, deliver me. And finally, the unjust judge was so tired of hearing her continual coming to him. And she's saying, not because he cared about God and not because he was a good judge. He just said, I am so vexed by this woman's continual plea. I grant her whatever she wants. That's interesting, isn't it? As an attorney, and Brother Milam can certainly identify with this, sometimes you have situations, you just think, well, I'm just not going to win. That happens sometimes. You know, the jury's not going to rule in my favor. I'm not going to get this thing that I petitioned for. We can take a great example from this sister right here, couldn't we, brother? She just kept coming and kept coming. Even though this was a wicked judge, cared nothing for God, he didn't care what her problem was. He just wanted to continue to be the judge that he was. And he finally just said, my goodness, I'm so tired of this woman bothering me. What is she? He doesn't even know what she wants. He just says, give her what she's asking for. And so they did. What an unjust, crooked, and wicked judge. Just because it vexed him. And the Lord said, are you not better and more important to me? You not see the point of prayer? He says, does not God's elect cry day and night unto him for deliverance and for petitions that they have before him? He says, shall not God deliver his own elect who cry unto him day and night? And then he says, nevertheless. Y'all thought I forgot where I was going, right? Nevertheless, when the Son of Man returns, shall he find faith on the earth? So he went off to another subject, didn't he? No, he didn't. Prayer is a matter of faith. Why would you pray to something if you didn't believe that that something was capable of delivering you or granting whatever you're praying for? Prayer is a matter of faith. That's why we should do it. And we should take the example of the unjust judge and like the widow, just continue to cry to God day and night, petitioning God. He doesn't grow weary of your praying. You see? And Jesus didn't jump ship to another subject. He said this, Nevertheless, when I return, will I find any of my children praying? Will there be any demonstrating their faith in prayer? That's interesting. You just got a piece of the mind of God. In a sense, if you'll let me say it this way, because that's how He said it, wondering if He would find anybody praying when He returned. You see, I wonder when this was written here, remember ye the law of Moses as the sun set on the Old Testament. I wonder if something similar wasn't in the mind of God. Remember ye the law of Moses. Will there be anybody keeping my law when I come? You get that? Will anybody be really understanding that the law is just a shadow of me 
to come who I am the law. I am the, the one that will keep it to a jot and to a tittle. I'll dot every I. I'll cross every T. I wonder if anybody will be keeping the law in the way that I intended it. Sadly, the people that had the stronghold on religion in the days when Christ came the first time, they were not keeping the law in the way that God intended it, right? So he says, just keep the law. Just keep the law. And the last thing is this. And I think, you could, I think they could sink their teeth into this. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. I will send you something that will be very noticeable. Elijah was very noticeable, the way he dressed and the way he acted. Now, think about it. If this was the last message you got from God, I will send you Elijah the prophet. If you wanted to comprehend a little more about what it, it would be like when this individual comes in however many years it was to come, it was 400 years, but you didn't know that, what would you go study? If he just said... I will send you Elijah the prophet. You know what I'm going to do? If I've got any sense whatsoever, I'm going to spend a lot of time studying about Elijah the prophet. Wouldn't you? Oh, he mentioned Elijah. So let's go study the life of Elijah. Let's go study the ways of Elijah. Let's go study the, the political climate in the days of Elijah. Let's go study about Elijah. And you remember this. Elijah, he was a big personality. He was a, he was a big prophet. But even he got down. Even he was suicidal at one point. And you know what God told him? He said, Elijah, you're saying you're the only one left, but I've got 7,000, a remnant of 7,000 down there that have not bowed their knees to Baal. But they're not on the billboard, and they're not flashing signs, and they're not the ones that are in the front page of the paper, but God knows where they are and who they are. And child of grace, it's going to be the same way whenever the Lord comes back the second time. It's going to be the same way. There'll be many of us, maybe you, maybe me, that will think, is there anybody left that serves God? Are we the only ones left you know, holding the banner of love of Christ up? It's going to be that way. And the political climate will be something similar probably. A very stifling political climate. But the Lord sees His people wherever they are. So take, take hope in that. The forerunner, John the Baptist, would prepare the way for Christ. And he says, He, John the Baptist, shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And silence. The sun sets. And there's darkness for 400 years. Who would have known it would have been 400 years? Some of them are probably thinking it'll be a few days. Don't we think that from time to time? We think surely the Lord's going to come back any moment. It could be 400 years. It could be 1,000 years. It could be 10,000 years. But I ask you this question. When the sun set on the Old Testament, on the Old Covenant, and there was a 400-year pause, did the Lord fulfill His promise to come? Yes, He did. And here we are 2,000 years later still basking in the sunlight of the sun rising with healing in His wings. You see, He was to preach, John the Baptist was to preach and bring families back together. And the Lord said, if that doesn't happen, if the family doesn't come back together, you can expect nothing but a curse. Okay, remember what we've learned. Families must come back together or there's nothing but a curse. The son will expose if someone is 
truly serving God or not. For those that are truly serving God, it brings a healing effect. For those that are legalists, it just burns them up in the oven of grace. The Lord just said, just keep the commandments. As you look for my coming, just keep the commandments. The greatest sunrise is yet to come. That sunrise was amazing. But there's going to come a sunrise, hopefully very soon, where the Lord exposes the wicked of the world and the righteous of the world. And the righteous will go off into eternal life. The wicked will go off into the lake of fire. That's what's coming. How are we living and doing in anticipation of that? I leave you with the words from the last book of the New Testament. Listen to this. We're going to skip in the last chapter, Revelation 22 and 7. Listen to what Christ says. Behold, I come quickly. This is talking about the second coming when He is the, the Son that, that exposes the whole universe to His righteousness. He says, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Verse 12. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. And then in verse 20. Surely I come quickly. You hear that three times? I never noticed that before. He says, Behold, I come. Behold, I come. Surely I come quickly. And that word quickly means I'm coming on time. So as we close out looking at the minor prophets and we look at the sunset, on the Old Testament. And we see the beautiful sunrise and the healing of grace, the rays of grace and the sunrise of the New Testament. We, are, we can see clearly on the horizon, in the distance, whenever the Lord is going to rise forever and all of His saints will rise with Him. I hope that is encouraging to us. I hope it brings a sense of purpose to us so that we can continue to serve Him in a very dark, dark time. There is light, and there is a remnant of truth. May the Lord bless us to maintain it and glorify Him.